I want to take you back in time. The year was 445 BC and the Persian Empire was the world's great superpower. Its borders stretched all the way around from Egypt to India. And one of the conquered peoples that lived under Persian rule were the Jews. Now what was special, what was unique about the Jews was they were the chosen people of God. God had revealed himself to the Jewish people and had promised that his plan of salvation for the whole world would in some way come through them. But because of their disobedience, God had punished them. They'd been scattered from their homeland, defeated by their enemies. But finally, after decades in exile, they'd been freed to return to Jerusalem. Some of them had done that. They'd started to rebuild the city. But the work of rebuilding the walls had ground to a halt and there was much discouragement. It seemed as though God's work in the world was at a standstill. And from a human perspective, it was. Yet all the time... There was a man in a foreign capital city who was weeping and praying over the state of God's people. He refused to believe that God had forgotten his promises. Despite all the evidence to the contrary, he still believed that God would come through for his people. The man's name was Nehemiah. And in the book of the Bible that bears his name, we get a first-person account of how God used Nehemiah to not only rebuild the walls of Jerusalem, but also rebuild and restore the people of God. And that's why this book, as we read it over 2,000 years later, still has something important to say to us today. You see, we live in a city that is no less spiritually bankrupt, destroyed and confused than the city of Jerusalem was in Nehemiah's day. And God's people, the church, today are no less in disarray. Less than 5% of those who live in the city have a genuine relationship with Jesus. More churches close every year than are started. There isn't one church in Birmingham that's among the 100 largest in the UK, not one. Yet all the time, God has said that the church will be the joy of the whole earth. And yet here in this city, the church is pretty much a laughing stock. To make matters worse, the eternal destiny of everyone in this city is determined solely by their response to Jesus. And an increasing number of people in this city have never even heard of Jesus. And the vast majority of those who have heard of him, well, they think he's just irrelevant. Last week... I challenged us on the way we respond to news like this. This week, I want to look in a little more detail at Nehemiah's response. And as we look at the first two chapters of this book, I'm praying that we would learn from him, we'd be inspired by him, and we'd go away and seek to emulate him. As we look at Nehemiah chapter 1 and 2, we could say that chapter 1 can be sound up with the word prayer. We meet Nehemiah on the day he learns from his brother who's just returned from Jerusalem that the walls are still in ruins. As we began to see last time, Nehemiah responds with immediate, persistent, passionate prayer. That's chapter one. Chapter two can be summed up with the word action. It records the decisive and forceful action taken by Nehemiah to begin this whole rebuilding project. And what I want to highlight today is that both prayer and action are vital. Nehemiah was a man of both prayer and action. We need both. If we're to see our city changed, if we're to see the restoration of the church, if we're going to see many people in the city saved and added to the church, it is absolutely essential, absolutely crucial that we're people who both pray and act and in that order. 
So let's start by looking at Nehemiah's prayer in chapter 1. The first three verses, we learn how Nehemiah is informed about the condition of the walls. This is what it says in verse 4. When I heard these things, I sat down and wept. For some days I mourned and fasted and prayed before the God of heaven. And then we get to listen in on, we get to eavesdrop what he prays. Verse 5, then I said, Lord, the God of heaven, the great and awesome God who keeps his covenant of love with those who love him and keep his commandments, let your ear be attentive and your eyes open to hear the prayer your servant is praying before you day and night for your servants, the people of Israel. I confess the sins that we Israelites, including myself and my father's family, have committed against you. We have acted very wickedly towards you. We haven't obeyed the commands, the decrees, the laws that you gave your servant Moses. Remember the instruction you gave your servant Moses, saying, If you're unfaithful, I will scatter you among the nations. But if you return to me, and obey my commands, then even if your exiled people are at the furthest horizon, I will gather them from there and bring them to the place I've chosen as a dwelling for my name. They're your servants and your people whom you redeemed by your great strength and your mighty hand. I want to focus on three simple points from Nehemiah's example here. First one is this, pray for the impossible. Pray for the impossible. Now because we know the end of this story, it's pretty easy to forget what an incredible thing Nehemiah was actually praying for here. You know, sometimes when we read about the work of God in history, we can wrongly assume that it was way easier for them back then. We kind of assume that it was almost inevitable that God was going to answer their prayers. Nehemiah didn't know how the story was going to turn out. He didn't know that he was currently in chapter 1 of the book of Nehemiah. At this point, he didn't know what was going to happen in chapter 2. He was simply living his life a day at a time. Much like we do. We don't know what tomorrow holds. And that's why it requires faith for us to pray when all we see is a pretty uncertain future ahead of us. That's exactly the circumstances Nehemiah found himself in. So let's talk about the situation facing Nehemiah. So we began to see last time, he was the cupbearer to the king. This was a highly influential role in the palace, but he was still a servant. Nehemiah wouldn't have had the freedom to just kind of wander in and start a conversation with the king about how he'd run the empire if he were him. If the king took a dislike to you, He could order your execution and there would be absolutely no grounds for appeal. If you think your boss is hard to work for, take some encouragement from Nehemiah. To in any way annoy, slight or offend the king meant the end of your career as a living human being. And then to further complicate matters for Nehemiah, his boss, the king, he'd already ordered that the construction of the walls of Jerusalem be halted. In Ezra chapter 4, it records how the surrounding rulers felt very threatened by the people of God. And so they wrote this letter to the king of Persia, basically slandering the Jews. And so the king had responded by commanding them to stop the work. And so for Nehemiah to approach the king and request help for his people, it effectively meant asking him to reverse his own policy. 
Rulers don't like doing that because essentially it's an acknowledgement that they got something wrong. It's a big deal. That was pretty much the problem facing Nehemiah. I want to ask you a question. Have you ever felt powerless in the face of a set of circumstances? Have you ever felt like you were at the mercy of another person's whim, another person's preference? Has it ever seemed like there was a person or a thing blocking your path? Has it ever felt as though God's will was just impossible to accomplish? I can't help but think that that is how Nehemiah must have felt. And yet he prayed, and he prayed, and he prayed. He prayed for the impossible. He turned to the God of heaven and asked him to change a whole set of circumstances which from a human perspective seemed impossible to change. He threw himself on the mercy of God. This was no half-hearted prayer. He throws himself on the mercy of God. He's ceaseless in his praying. Verse 4 says, For some days I mourned and fasted and prayed before the God of heaven. Doesn't that challenge you? Isn't that provoking to us? What I want you to see here is that if we want to be people who see God work to overthrow evil, to advance his kingdom in ways that seem humanly impossible, there must be a wholehearted engagement on our part. There must be a refusal to be distracted. There was this intentionality in Nehemiah's pursuit of God. There was a seriousness. He was deadly earnest. He was saying to God, God, hear my cry because I'm going to keep on bringing it to you because I believe it's in line with your will and so I'm not going to let you go until you act. And that's the kind of focus and seriousness that I believe is called for from us today. So let me ask you, what's on your list of impossible prayer requests? I wonder, do you have a list like that? Where are you praying for God's will to be done where the odds seem just insurmountable? Maybe it's the salvation of an unbelieving friend or family member. Maybe it's someone you know. Maybe it's yourself. You require healing from God. Maybe God's stirring you to pray for a specific place, whether it's your place of work or your community or your school or campus. And God's giving you this burning desire to see his name exalted in a place where right now is despised and ignored. And it seems impossible that that could ever change. Are you willing to pray for the impossible? You know, Nehemiah prayed for things that required a shifting of government policy. I wonder, is God stirring your heart to pray for this nation? To pray for transformation in the hearts of the men and women who lead our country? Back in the 17 and 1800s, There's a guy called William Wilberforce who helped to oppose and ultimately abolish the slave trade in the British Empire. That was something that at the time seemed impossible. The slave trade permeated the whole of society. It was so much a part of the way things were that it took decades of legislation to change it. And yet Wilberforce and others like him, they prayed and prayed and prayed until reform came. I want you to think of impossible things in our day and age. For example, we live in a culture, don't we, where abortion so permeates the thinking. It's just assumed that if you have an unwanted pregnancy, well, it's nothing to end that human life. And it's kind of hard to imagine that ever changing. I mean, last year, just here in the UK, there were over 200,000 abortions. But what if God began stirring the hearts of his people to seek him and to the answers? 
Or what if we started to pray for God to reach the parts of the world that are currently unreached? There are still parts of the world where there's no known Christian presence. What if we stirred ourselves to pray and fast for people to go with the gospel, for people to be saved, for churches to be planted? Or what if we began asking God to change our city, to build the church in this city, to save souls in this city? It might seem impossible to you right now, but God calls us to pray for the impossible. I also want you to see how Nehemiah's confidence to pray for the impossible was actually rooted in his knowledge of God. Let's have a quick look again at verse 5. He prays, O Lord, God of heaven, the great and awesome God who keeps his covenant of love. And we today pray to exactly the same God. We pray to the same God who is still great and awesome. We pray to the same God who still keeps his covenant of love. We pray to the same God who is still holy and hates wickedness and yet is still so full of mercy that when people turn to him and repent of their sin, he forgives them. I love how Nehemiah's prayer and reflection on the character of God affected his whole perspective. Look again at verse 11. He prays here, Lord, let your ear be attentive to the prayer of this, your servant, and to the prayer of your servants who delight in revering your name. Give your servant success today by granting him favour in the presence of, notice this, this man. Who is this man? This man was no less than the king of Persia. He was the mightiest man in the whole known world at that point in history. And as Nehemiah prays in the presence of the king of heaven... It's like the king of Persia becomes just this man that God can change. Just this man that God can overrule. So let's read how God does this. Enter chapter 2. Start reading in verse 1. In the month of Nisan, in the 20th year of King Artaxerxes, when wine was brought for him, I took the wine and gave it to the king. I hadn't been sad in his presence before. So the king asked me, why does your face look so sad when you're not ill? This can surely be nothing but sadness of heart. I was very much afraid, but I said to the king, May the king live forever. Why should my face not look sad when the city where my ancestors are buried lies in ruins? Its gates have been destroyed by fire. King said to me, So what is it you want? I quickly prayed to the God of heaven. Then I answered the king, well, if it pleases the king and if your servant has found favour in his sight, please let him send me to the city in Judah where my ancestors are buried so that I can rebuild it. And the king, with the queen sitting beside him, asked me, well, how long is your journey going to take and when will you get back? It pleased the king to send me, so I set a time. I also said to him, well, If it pleases the king, may I also have letters to the governors of Trans-Euphrates so that they'll provide safe conduct for me until I arrive in Judah. And may I also have a letter to Asaph, the keeper of the royal park, so he'll give me timber to make beams for the gates of the citadel by the temple and for the city wall and for the residence I'll occupy. And because the gracious hand of my God was on me, the king granted my requests." Here's the second thing we learn from Nehemiah's example here. Pray and be ready for action. Pray and be ready for action. Faith-filled prayer is certainly not at odds with human action. We desperately need both. 
Now I guess some of us, we can be tempted when we see a problem. Maybe we see that something's wrong in our life or in the church or our city. We can be tempted to just rush on in with action. Never stop to pray and seek God. We just rush in. And that can be a massive mistake. Others can make the opposite mistake. We pray and we pray and we pray and we pray and we pray. And we not only don't look for any action to be taken, we also don't actually want to personally do anything about it. Nehemiah is this compelling example of both prayer and action. He's praying, but he's also at the same time on the lookout for any opportunity that God might give him. And you see how his very active praying ended up involving him in the solution. You know, that's what often happens when you pray. When you go before God and you begin to pray in accordance with his will, for his promises to be fulfilled, for his will to be done in your life and in the lives of the people around you, it's like you can't pray for something without starting to get personally involved with it. And that's certainly what happens with Nehemiah. As he prays for the walls of Jerusalem, it's like there's this growing voice inside him saying, God, please use me. God, give me success. Give your servant success today. It's surely no accident that, God, you've placed me where you've placed me. It's surely no accident that you've given me this great burden for your glory in the city of Jerusalem. Lord, use me. God, send me. Pray and be ready for action. And be prepared for God to give you a passion to be a part of the answer. Nehemiah prays, give your servant success today. I love the fact he was praying, but he was also looking for the immediate opportunity. What we need to note, though, is that although he prayed, give your servant success today, nothing happened for the best part of four months. And every day Nehemiah's praying, give your servant success today. It didn't happen yesterday. Maybe today is the day. Give your servant success today. I think some of us give up way too quickly. Maybe we pray for something one day and when nothing happens, we're like, oh God, where are you? And we move on. It's like prayer doesn't work. You know, you might have to pray for a month, four months, four years. You might have to pray for 40 years. You see what the story of Nehemiah shows us? What what it teaches us is that in an instant, God can change a set of circumstances that you had no idea he could change. You had no clue how it was going to happen. And then all of a sudden, God breaks in. Nehemiah, he wakes up every day. He prays, Lord, may this be the day that you give me success. And day after day, there's no opening. There's no opportunity. Just can't figure out how it's going to happen. But on this particular day, A day that looked like every other day, the conversation starts, he never imagined would take place. The same is true for us. You may be praying for an unbelieving relative, or friend, or neighbour. You have to persevere in prayer for them for years and years and years. Maybe you've tried to start the conversation, you've tried to create the interest, you've tried to move them closer to God, but you just can't do it. Let me tell you, You could walk into a conversation one day and after years of praying, God can suddenly just move in that person's heart. But when God opens that door for you, the question is, are you going to be ready? Are you going to be ready to act? Are you going to be ready to speak? 
Are you praying with the faith that says, even though you haven't answered me yet, that doesn't mean you can't answer me or that you aren't going to answer me. And so I'm going to keep on trusting and I'm going to keep on asking. When the opportunity comes, I'm going to act. Nehemiah was praying and he was ready for action. As a cupbearer for the king, he had close proximity to the king and yet he can't figure out how to raise the matter with him. Notice it makes the point here that he hasn't ever been sad in the presence of the king. That's because the rule is when you go before the king, you're happy. And if you're not, you just pretend, you fake it. Some of you, you've got a boss like that. How are you doing? Great. So glad to be here. I just love being in this office. You know, it's such a privilege to be part of this team. I I spent most of my time just trying to figure out new ways to spend more time here. It's like they want you to pretend that you're happy. They want you to pretend that being with them is the highlight of your life. And being at work is such a privilege, such a wonderful thing. And the king, because he was so powerful and because he was loved and adored like a god, when you're around the king, you're supposed to be happy. How are you doing? Great. Couldn't be better. I mean, I'm with the king. Always supposed to be that way. And if you're not that way, the king will kill you. So that's further incentive to be happy. Or at least to pretend. But Nehemiah is sad. He's going before the king, serving him wine, and he's sad. Verse 2, so the king asked me, why does your face look so sad when you're not unwell? This can be nothing but sadness of heart. You see, Nehemiah is devastated that the city is destroyed, that he's far away from his homeland, and they need him. People need to learn about God. The Bible needs to be taught. People need to be brought home. There's a huge amount of work to be done. And so he's experiencing this sadness of heart. Shares the heart of Jesus, who's Heart's broken over any city where the church isn't strong and he's not worshipped and the Bible isn't taught and God's people aren't being encouraged and conversions aren't happening regularly. Jesus' heart breaks for any city like that. That's why Jesus himself, like Nehemiah, wept over Jerusalem. So Nehemiah, he has Jesus' heart for that city, the same heart that God intends for us to have for our city, one of brokenness, and sadness and grief that we love our city we want our city to meet Jesus and we want churches including our church to grow and be strengthened Nehemiah goes before the king and the king says hey what's wrong you have a very sad face it's because his heart was so broken that he couldn't pretend he couldn't fake it anymore King looks at him and says, why so sad? You've never been sad in my presence before. What's going on? I love the fact that Nehemiah confesses how terrified he was at this point. Because you just don't want to make the king sad. If you have a grumpy face and make the king sad, he might choose to cheer himself up by getting rid of your grumpy face and the head to which it's attached. He's understandably pretty scared in this moment. And what I find instructive here is that so often the opportunity for advancing God's purpose comes with a risk attached. Isn't that true? You've been praying for something and God suddenly opens the door and yet for you to step through that door is to risk something. There is fear involved. Courage is needed. And yet Nehemiah seizes the moment. 
I don't want you to miss the connection. Surely the way he functions in this moment is explained by the way he's been functioning on his knees in private. It's because of his secret prayers and cries to God that I believe in the moment that God gives him the opportunity to speak, he has the courage to speak. And as he's speaking, he's not knowing how the king's going to react. It could lose him his job. It could lose him his life. He must have been tempted just to water it all down. I'm not sad. Why would I be unhappy when I have such a great boss as you? But instead of watering it down, instead of keeping quiet, he tells it as it is. To which the king responds, what is it you want? Remember, this is the most powerful person in the world speaking here. That's what the power of God can bring about. God can cause the mightiest ruler in the world to be asking a man of God, what is it you want? That's a miracle. That's a work of God. And it leads to our third and final point. Pray and plan diligently. Pray and plan diligently. The king said, what is it you want? At which point, Nehemiah prays some more. It's a passage in the New Testament. I think it's 1 Thessalonians 5, 17, where Paul encourages us to pray without ceasing, to keep on praying. And I think Nehemiah is just a brilliant example of this. He's constantly interacting with God. It's one of the great threads, one of the great themes that weaves the whole book together. And so in this moment, when he needs to say the right thing, so much depends on it, he might not get another opportunity like this ever again, he shoots up a prayer and asks for God's help. Because certain decisions in life and certain opportunities in life, they are very strategic. You miss it, it's gone. So in those moments, you've got to pray. Maybe you're going into a very important meeting, pray. Maybe you go into a job interview, you're praying silently. You're going in to take a test at school or at college. You're praying in your head. She's cute. You're scared. You're hoping for the best. Pray. Pray a lot. If something matters to you, pray about it in the moment. You're sitting in a meeting at work and you feel compelled to speak and the stakes are high and it's crucially important. Much depends on it. Be praying. God, give me the right words. Give them ears to hear. You know, short prayers work because God's listening and God cares. I want to encourage you to pray when you're at work, to pray when you're at school, to pray when you're at college, pray when you're out with your mates, wherever you're facing a challenge when you don't know what to do. It it might not be a spiritual context, but do you realise that you can receive help from God in those contexts in the moment? But what I really want you to see here is that Nehemiah hadn't merely been praying lots. He also had a specific plan to present. You see... It's not enough to just be bold. It's not enough just to be courageous. We also need to use the God-given capacities we have to think through what's needed. Regardless of what we do, how old we are, what spiritual experience we have, what responsibilities we carry, we should be people who not only pray, but also plan diligently. I want you to see that prayer... And reliance on God doesn't negate the need for tactical speech and careful planning and wise strategy. I don't know, maybe you say, well, I want to lose weight. 
I want to make more money. I want to get out of debt. I want to finish college. I want to get married. I want to buy a house. I want to do ministry. I want to disciple people. I want to evangelize people. I want to change the world. What's your plan? Well, I'm praying about it. Oh, by all means, pray. Please pray. Would that we prayed more. Prayer's good. Prayer's vital. But prayer should also lead to a plan. You know, sometimes I think we can be guilty of over-spiritualizing the work necessary to advance God's cause. Nehemiah doesn't fall for the trap of thinking that being a person of faith means you don't have to plan. You don't need to think carefully. That somehow those aren't spiritual activities. That if you just pray, all you need to do is pitch up and expect everything to work out fine. As soon as the king asked Nehemiah, what is it you want? Nehemiah just starts rolling off his plan. Because presumably during his three or four months of prayer, he wasn't just praying and crying. He was also sketching out a plan of action. He knew precisely what was needed. So he asked for specific letters to be written and detailed permission to be granted. He had a list of all the materials that would be needed and made sure that they were all going to be in place. You see, prayer and planning go together. Now, we touched on this last time, but really what's coming out here, I think, is a whole lifetime of faithful diligence. I mean, think about all the training that Nehemiah's received over his life. Think of all the study. Think of all the skills he's developed. He didn't get this job as cupbearer to the king without a whole load of hard graft over a long period of time. Now, again, I believe there's a very important lesson here that applies to all of us. But as I was preparing this, I just felt a real burden to speak this particularly to the young people in the church. Now, I'll let you be the judge of whether you are one of them. But here's the message. Don't be slack in your work. Don't be lazy in your study. It might not seem that important to you right now, but it is very important. Because it's what God is using to shape and prepare you so you might be useful in his purposes in the future. So I just want to challenge you to give yourself to your pursuit of education. Or maybe you're working in your first job and it doesn't seem all that impressive. Maybe it doesn't excite you a whole lot. Apply yourself. Be diligent. Because the church today desperately needs men and women who are willing to cultivate the skills and abilities that will get them into the very highest levels of every field of our culture. In government, in law, in science, in education, in the media, in industry, in the creative arts, in every area. If we're going to see our culture change, we need believers in positions of influence. Nehemiah's secular work was absolutely crucial for the advance of God's purposes. And the same is true for all of us. Our work, our labour, our study. The Bible says it's an expression of our worship to God. God has placed us where we are and we're to work hard and to the best of our ability as if to God himself. And if we'll do that, He'll use us in ways we might not see for years. Perhaps never understand the significance of what we're doing. But God can, and I believe will use it for his glory. I'll tell you, the story of Nehemiah is just this wonderful reminder to us that God really is sovereign over everything. Not many sovereign over the spiritual stuff. He's sovereign over your job 
He's sovereign. He's in control over your boss. God was so sovereign that he was able to place Nehemiah in the right place at just the right time to accomplish the purposes that he had for his people. One of the Proverbs, Proverbs 21, verse 1, I think sums up the change in Nehemiah's boss, the king, perfectly. It says this, In the Lord's hand, the king's heart is a stream of water that he channels, he directs towards all who please him. Doesn't that encourage you? There's no one that has ultimate power over you or over anybody else. The heart of the king, the government, your boss, your teachers, they're all in the hand of God. Our God, he's the God of heaven. He's the sovereign one. Therefore, pray for the impossible. Pray and be ready for action. Pray and plan. Here's what I want to leave you with. Does the welfare of this city and God's people within this city and all those who don't know God in this city, does it grip your heart? Do we love God so much that when he's not getting the glory that he deserves, we're deeply grieved by that? It concerns us. Do we so long to see Jesus made famous that we're willing to fast and pray? Asking him to act so that his name might be known. And do we see our gifts and abilities and even our job as no accident, but God's sovereign placement of us to be a blessing to advance his purposes? And are we willing to take more risks for the advance of God's purposes? Even if it means being placed in danger, are we willing to go there with God? I want to appeal to you. Let's be people of prayer and people of action.